Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our newest talk. This will be on the CT detection evaluation of cardiac masses, what you need to know. So let's get started. I think one way of thinking about cardiac masses is really a very organized approach. Now, the first thing to, I should comment on, perhaps, is when I give conferences to our faculty and residents and fellows on Wednesdays, I often do show cardiac cases, some of them with masses. But the reality is, if I think hard, how often do I get a requisition that says rule out cardiac mass? It's not, not very frequent. I get lots of requisitions that say rule out PE, rule out dissection, perhaps rule out pericardial effusion. But rule out cardiac mass is something you don't see very frequently. However, it's not uncommon for us to see cardiac masses. And so it's important to really think about them, understand their CT appearance, and understand a little bit about history and how we go about analyzing these cases. So the first thing you want to know, is there a cardiac mass present? And if the answer is yes, where is it? Is it intracavitary? Is it extending down along the great vessels, kind of growing downwards like a thymoma or lymphoma? Is it a pericardial mass? Is it a valvular mass? Then what about the lesion? What are its tissue characteristics? Is it enhancing or is it not enhancing? Is it calcified? Does it contain fat? And then of course, relevant clinical history. If you have patient with lymphoma, then it's a good chance you have lymphomatous involvement of the heart. If it's a patient with melanoma, melanoma will often metastasize to the heart, often by vascular extension. So history indeed is going to be very important. Now, if I think about an intracavitary mass, not everything intracavitary, of course, is gonna be a tumor. Probably the most common thing we see, particularly on the right side of the heart, is gonna be a thrombus. Thrombus is associated with catheters being in place. Thrombus is associated with things uh, such as um, patients with coagulopathies, just to mention a couple. We then think about intracavitary masses as benign tumors like myxomas, lipomas, rhabdomyomas, fibromas, and malignant tumors, including angiosarcoma, other sarcomas, including chondroblastic or osteogenic sarcomas, as well as lymphoma. And then we speak about metastatic disease as well. Now, just some basic facts. Primary tumors of the heart are indeed rare, and METs are more common. Typically, people will say METs are about 40 times more common than primary cardiac tumors. 75% of primary cardiac tumors are benign, the most commonly myxomas, and 25% of cardiac tumors are malignant, and those are most commonly going to be sarcomas. There's an article by Lickenberger, I think it's a very good article that looks at cardiac tumors, has a lot of good facts, and I'll share with you some of them. Primary cardiac neoplasms occur in incidence of about 30 per 100,000 people per year. 80% are benign. The WHO has classified neoplasms of the heart into benign and tumor-like conditions such as myxoma, malignant tumors such as angiosarc, and pericardial tumors such as solitary fibrous tumors. In patients older than 16, the most common primary cardiac tumors are myxomas, lipomatous tumors, and papillary fibroelastomas, while in patients under 16, so we'll consider the pediatric population, 
The most common things are rhabdomyomas, teratomas, fibromas, and myxomas. Now, one of the challenges with cardiac tumors, the article also mentions, is the most common presenting symptom is dyspnea. But again, dyspnea is so many things. We think about dyspnea every day. Again, PE is the thing we think about the most. The challenge with tumors is really location and size as to how they're going to present. It could be anywhere from obstruction of blood flow, decreased cardiac output, arrhythmias, or heart failure. It's important to recognize that even benign tumors can have fatal outcomes based on location and based on symptoms. Now, if we look at cardiac tumors, the clinical presentation a little bit more closely and break it into that systemic, cardiac, and embolic, we'll say constitutional symptoms and paraneoplastic syndromes are things we think about. Cardiac is mass effect, affecting myocardial function or blood flow, arrhythmias, interference with heart valves, causing regurgitation, or pericardial fusion with or without tamponade. So the symptoms, dyspnea, chest pain, syncope, presyncope, all are things we typically look at every day, but we're looking typically dissection versus PE. So it makes the point that you need to look carefully at the heart because every once in a while, you're going to pick up a cardiac tumor causing the patient's symptoms. And of course, embolic phenomena, pulmonary or systemic thromboembolic phenomena from the tumors. And we think about that as, for example, both from clot, which can give embolic phenomena, but also things like atrial myxomas. Now, I mentioned about the key things we're looking at, so let's look at them a little bit closer. So key cardiac findings on CT, size of lesions, that can be helpful at times, but there's a range of sizes. Even if you take something as simply as myxoma, there's a large range of sizes. Quantity, if lesions are multiple, then we truly are thinking about metastasis. We mentioned location, and everything in radiology is location, location, location. Cardiac chamber, left atrium, you're thinking myxoma. Pericardial involvement on the right side, you're thinking angiosarcoma. Extracardiac structures, extracardiac involvement, maybe it's lymphoma or metastasis. We talk about appearance, morphology, margins, attachment, infiltration. We talk about tissue characterization, calcification, fat attenuation, vascularity. And then, of course, the comments we made about clinical correlation. And again, if the patient does have a history of malignancy, you really got to be thinking that the process is going to be metastatic disease. So let's start with cardiac myxomas. They're the most common primary cardiac tumors and are believed to be derived from mesenchymal cell precursors. They typically form intracavitary masses, which are most commonly found in the left atrium, attached by a stalk to the fossovallus, but they can be seen in the right atrium as well, especially in children. Other anatomic origins include the atrial free wall and mitral valve, however, that's less likely. We can also see lymph these myxomas in the heart chambers, like the left ventricle. That's pretty rare, but it does occur. Um, there are not many syndromes associated with myxomas. One is Carney syndrome, which is a multiple neoplasia and lentigiginous syndrome. Um, but again, this is a small percent of cases. 
The mean age of diagnosis is 50 years and approximately 70% of myxomas occur in women, so it is a more common tumor in women. On cardiac CT, myxomas often manifest as a low attenuation intracavitary mass with smooth or slightly villous surface. When it's perfectly smooth, it makes it a bit easier, particularly in cases where you're trying to distinguish it from a thrombus. Calcification is seen in about 14% of cases, and more commonly in right-sided lesions. And arterial phase contrast enhancement is usually not present, but if you had delayed phase, you might see a little bit of enhancement. So myxomas are not hypervascular tumors. Again, location, left atrium, particularly near the intraatrial septum. They can have irregular borders, pedunculated morphology, and they can be mobile. In fact, myxomas can cause a polypoid-type process and herniate through the patient's uh, mitral valve. The size of the tumor is related to degree of mobility and the potential that the lesion can obstruct at the AV valve. Now, just some more facts in terms of CT findings. Most of the time, well-defined, lobulated, and smooth. We mentioned calcification, 14% is the typical number. Some articles go as high as 50%. My experience is probably closer to 14%. Again, significant enhancement is not there, but like all tumors, there is some enhancement present, and so we'll go with those. So again, the clinical presentation, almost equal vascular obstruction, constitutional symptoms, and embolic events. And we went through that in more detail a few moments ago. So let's look at some examples. Here's a really nice case of a mass in the patient's left atrium near the patient's right atrium. It's a very good location. This mass is somewhat smooth. It's low density and slightly irregular margins. Here it is nicely shown, particularly when you do the uh, black blood or inverted image where you can see the polypoid mass, the broad base of the lesion, and it's a regular surface. Here it is on the coronal view, very nicely shown. You can see in the second case, similar location except the lesion is much larger. You also can see in this case, very faint calcifications. In this case, the lesion is very smooth. The borders are fairly sharp. So now I'm showing you a large mass in the left atrium with faint calcification, smooth margins, and a broad-based appearance where it's flat against the interatrial septum. And that's really very, very classic for a myxoma. Just a beautiful example also in the sagittal views, showing the lesion very nicely. And this is not going to be a very difficult diagnosis, and this patient will go to surgery. Here's another case where the patient had chest pain, and I think the chest pain was related to this very large hiatal hernia, but you do see that filling defect in the patient's left atrium. That's, you could consider thrombus. Both would be on the wall. This is slightly irregular. Uh, you can see it has just slight lobulations, about a centimeter and a half in size. Here it is very nicely, its border shown on the patient's cinematic rendered image. And here with a black blood technique, you really can see it very nicely in the patient's left atrium. And here's just another view of that. I have found cinematic rendering to be very helpful. 
It's especially helpful when you want to look inside cardiac chambers. This black blood technique we described a couple years ago really works very well. And you see the tumor very nicely in this case. What about this case? Patient has chest pain. It was ruled out PE. There's a large filling defect in the left atrium. It's in the same location as the other cases, right? Broad-based, right by the uh, junction between the right and left atrium, but this is surely in the patient's left atrium proper. Relatively smooth margins, though a little bit of irregularity seen. You can see as you go from arterial to venous phase, still well-defined. Here it is, it looks a little bit bilobed when you get to the 3D coronal perspective. And here it is really nicely shown, right, on the cinematic, the lobulations, the location. And yes, you could think about this being a thrombus, but based on size and location, you have to go with a uh, left atrial myxoma, and that's indeed what this case was. Oh yes, and these are one of that 7% of cases that had Carney syndrome. What about this one? Large lobulated mass posteriorly. Maybe it has some faint calcifications. I don't see anything else. Here it is nicely on the black blood technique, inverted, showing the broad base, the lobulations. Just a really nice example. Maybe a touch of faint calcification. Here it is again on the volume rendered views. And this also was a left atrial myxoma. So you can really see that myxomas do have a certain pattern of appearance, location, lobulations, density that should help you. What about this case? Is this another myxoma, but in the patient's right atrium? Well, there's a mass, it's two centimeters. It's somewhat lobulated. It's not enhancing. It's shown nicely on the black blood technique images. Well, what is this? Well, this patient does not have a catheter present now, but had a catheter previously for several weeks, and this ended up being a thrombus. So one thing that does help you, of course, is history. Patients who have a catheter in place, even if the catheter is taken out, even if the catheter hasn't been there for a long time, statistically, it's going to end up being a thrombus. So that's very important. Okay, here's another case with multiple masses in the patient's left atrium. What's this? Patient also has aortic valve replacement. What's going on here? Look at all the images. This was thrombus. Now you have to admit, the thing that pushed me to thrombus here was the fact there were multiple masses. Atrial myxomas are usually one mass. When you start seeing multiple masses, you got to think about thrombus. That's the way thrombus behaves. This patient had all other risk factors, including an AVR, but a very, very nice example. Now, I mentioned about stents being in place. Here's a really nice case. We see a defect in the patient's right atrium. Yes, you could be thinking about a myxoma. You should think about that with any filling defect. But as you look carefully, there's a catheter in place. You can see it nicely on the coronal views. You can see it really nicely where this mass is surrounding the tip of the catheter. And this is a classic appearance for a thrombus in the patient's right atrium. Again, the importance of being able to recognize the stent in place 
Here it is really nice with intraluminal views. Remember I said before that if you have the catheter in place, it makes it very easy. But if you don't have a catheter in place, you may need to go back and look at the history. Was there a catheter in place recently? What's the patient's history? So all that can become very, very important. But this is just a wonderful example of thrombus on a catheter in the right atrium. Now, in terms of thrombi, locations are some more common than others. Remember, in the right heart, I mentioned patients with prior catheters, but the left atrial appendage is a very common place for thrombi. And one of the things about thrombi with the left atrial appendage, uh, it can then embolize, give renal infarcts, give splenic infarcts, occlude vessels. One of the challenges, of course, with atrial appendage thrombi, at times you're not certain because there's a defect and a fluid fluid level, and you can get pseudothrombi as well. So that can become very important. We do look at the left atrial appendage a lot now, particularly in patients who are going to get cardiac surgery, like TAVRs. If you have thrombus in the left atrial appendage, which is more common in patients with poor cardiac output or big atrial appendages, they'll often put devices in, such as a watchmaker device would be one example. Here's a nice case of a patient done to rule out aortic dissection. You see the filling defect in the left atrial appendage. There's no magic. This is a thrombus. Nicely seen as well on the sagittal view and nicely seen here as well on the black blood view. Classic thrombus, no problem. That may be removed or perhaps the patient will get a uh, device placed. Again, beautiful images. Okay, no problem. What about this case? You see there looks like a defect in the patient's left atrial appendage but you see the fluid fluid level. When I see a fluid fluid level, you gotta be thinking there's something else going on. And in this case, it's the typical appearance of a pseudoclot in the left atrial appendage. A very, very nice example. If you're uncertain, simply go back and rescan the patient 30 seconds later or 60 seconds later, this will fill in. Again, the pseudoclots are most common in patients with large left atrial appendages or in patients with poor cardiac output. Now, one of the other things we do see in terms of thrombi is patients with thrombi in multiple locations. Here's a patient with a large pulmonary embolism as well as a defect in the patient's atrial appendage. And yes, it is possible that you're dealing with an atrial myxoma and a PE, but you know, when you see one thrombus, perhaps there's a second, and in this case, you see that there was showering of emboli, there's occlusion and thrombus in the aorta, and occlusion of portions of the right renal artery with decreased enhancement of the right renal artery. You also can see the patient showered emboli distally, occluding the patient's mid-SFA, very nicely shown on the CTA. And you can see nicely as we go to MIP, both the involvement of the right renal artery as well as the left SFA. And again, when you have thrombi present, uh, they're more likely to see distally. It is true that an atrial myxoma can give distal thrombi, but it's significantly less common. A beautiful example then of clot in the pulmonary artery, the left atrium, and emboli sent downstream in the SFA and renal artery. 
Now, let me end with just one summary set of slides. There used to be an idea that you could separate myxomas versus thrombus looking at these seven features. So let me go over them. Attenuation of a mass, truthfully, calcification may be a bit more common in myxomas, but you can see calcifications in long-standing thrombi. Myxomas are usually larger, but on the small lesions, there's significant overlap, so that's not very helpful. Both can occur in the left or right atrium, though I will admit my experiences, thrombi because of catheters are more common in the right atrium. Thrombi usually in the left atrial appendage. If I said there's something in the left atrial appendage, myxomas almost never occur there. It's almost always going to be a thrombus, as I showed you some examples a few moments ago. Shape, the villus shape is more common in myxomas, but again, this may not be all that helpful. We talk about mobility. This is more under echo, but it can be under cardiac CT or MR when you do 4D display. Myxomas commonly are more mobile, particularly when they have a stalk. And then in terms of prolapse, there is no difference. So those are seven features that are important. The next thing I want to talk about are papillary fibroelastomas, which are another very recognizable tumor. But I'll tell you what we do. Let's take a break here. We'll come back and we'll pick it up from here. And with that, see you in a few minutes. If you like this video, make sure to subscribe to the CTSS YouTube channel. You can also visit us at ctss.com for even more videos, plus quizzes, pearls, protocols, and oh so much more. We're also in the App Store and have well over a dozen apps for iPhone and iPad, all completely free. Thanks for watching.